very much Zoe for starting off that conversation. Um, without further ado, we'll have our next speaker, uh, Marianne Michaud, who's an independent design historian, and she presents her paper, Design to Kill, the Difficult Study of Military Design. So first of all, um, any resemblance with um, another paper's title is purely coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> Must say that. And a very quick introduction, since time is short. Um, almost 20 years ago, I fell into, I fell into arms and armor studies by accident. Uh, I had never heard about that. Uh, little people did hear about that. And not many people do, actually, and I think among you is not, uh, no, anyone <laughs> knowing about arms and armor study? I don't think so. So it's a very confidential field of study, uh, very interesting, I found fascinating, and I've studied that for 10 years, and finally, eventually, I got out of it, thanks to design history. And I discovered a new world. Oh my god, there's so much potential there. <laughs> uh, but there is also, uh, I hope, I'm going to demonstrate that uh, arms and armor study can also bring something to design history. So uh, most of my paper will be about, well, let's say an introduction to arms and armor studies and its potential <coughs> interest for design historians. So we start first in museums. In the early 19th century, Education was the main concern for most museums. As a result, arms and armor were usually displayed as belonging to prominent historical figures to better illustrate national history. If documents or sources were lacking, scholars of past times had no qualms in conveniently attributing a weapon with an unusual design or heavily decorated as belonging to a historical hero who necessarily possessed an exceptional piece of equipment to fit its military glory. For example, in a touristic guide of the Musée de l'Armée in Paris, dated 1808, a French scholar proudly presents the newly discovered armor of Joan of Arc. Here you are. This attribution was made on the basis of the armor clearly feminine design, at least in the minds of contemporary curators. Uh, you can see the metal pants covering entirely the body, uh, the hourglass outline giving the shape of a cosseted woman and of course you can see it's there but there's uh, in all those little things there there's flowers little gold flowers so clearly it's very feminine you know um, so you can see that even at that time uh, there was this idea that Joanna Bach was a kind of fashion victim uh, <laughs> having the medieval equivalent of a Chanel uh, I'm a you might notice this piece. You know, you might think, well, what was in their, in their mind? You know, it's not exactly feminine. Well, no, there's a very good explanation for that, and it's given in the footnote uh, of this guide. Uh, All for chosen by God, Joan of Arc was a woman like any other which means that she had to go to the bathroom quite often. <laughs> so this part of the armor is nothing more than an astute contraption designed to contain a small sponge so that the maid would not have to leave the battlefield to answer nature's call. <laughs> so that's why we won. Yeah. <laughs> 
almost. almost. <laughs> uh, in truth, this armor is dated 1515, and it's uh, <coughs> armor for foot tournament made for Julian of Medicis. So nothing to do with Joan of Arc altogether. So also the decorative quality of these pieces is important. What truly mattered was their prestigious origin. They were displayed as historical artifacts inherited from powerful kings and warriors rather than examples of armament of the period. And you can see that the Musée Charles X, Charles X, before being the Musée du Louvre. And you can see here, this is the armor of Henry II, uh, king of the 16th century, Renaissance French king. By the end of the 19th century, the interest in arms and armor was no more limited to exceptional pieces whose prestigious owner was known or supposedly known, and a new field of study emerged. The first half of the 20th century saw the publication of fundamental works. Many of them are still references today for the dating or identification of weapons. This new field was like a blank page where everything had yet to be written, chronology, typology, production, and in order to determine precise landmarks for identification, scholars started analyzing the evolution of military design through centuries. Such a rise of interest was certainly beneficial from a scholarly point of view, but until the 1950s, most publications were works by military men, engineers, sometimes architects, and even a zoologist, in the case of Bashford Dean at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. The design of past weaponry was not studied as such, but used as a method to develop a scientific grid for classification. Armed specialists put <coughs> emphasis on technical evolution and taxonomy, cultivating its own vocabulary, categories, subcategories, which made reference books look like entomologists' work, classifying swords and ball arms like butterflies. So uh, you can see a very good example of what you can find in publication of the time. So you follow the evolution of pole arms, you know, it's very well described and every type is uh, referenced. Uh, so very precise uh, work. Another one, this one, I like very much because it reminds me a bit of an IKEA assembly instruction, you know, kind of um, take piece B, insert into slot C, and so on and so forth, which is actually what it, what it is. This emphasis certainly brought important material to the attention of historians, medievalists in particular, but arms experts themselves regularly underestimated the influence of military design on economical, social, and cultural evolutions, perhaps deliberately. Indeed, arms and armor studies have long been considered a niche discipline, a highly specialized area of research. In the first half of the 20th century, scholars not unfrequently took pride in differentiating themselves from the humanities by their more practical approach. This discipline was, was object-based. It was about dimension, weight, material, even chemistry, data you can compute and scientifically test. Arms and armor studies was like a very exclusive club where you needed to know the difference between woods and crucible steel to get admittance. You can see the difference, of course. <laughs> Do you pass the test? Can you get into arms and armor studies? <laughs> the woods is on the right, so it's a kind of specific kind of iron ore, and the other one is uh, crucible steel, which is another kind of ore, just to put your 
information. Not that it's going to be of any use, I think, for you in your <laughs> the rest of your life, but <laughs> So should I say the word? Yes, arms and armor specialists could be a bit geeky, even before the word was coined, and did not always look favorably upon the possible intrusion of more conceptual notions into their own vocabulary. And it's not, it didn't stop in the 50s, because uh, actually there's someone in the Royal Armouries in Leeds uh, who's counting one by one wings in chainmail shirts. Because usually you say, oh, this is about you know, 10,000 wings or 300,000 wings, but nobody cared about counting them. And then someone actually doing it right now in the Royal Armouries of Leeds, and willingly, I mean, <laughs> he, he really wanted to do that. He wanted to know the answer. You know, the, the answer is not 42. Uh, I think the answer would be much more than that. Um, I'll let you know, you know, if you want more information, please email me. Um, but I'm going to show you this one. Uh, humanities fields of research have not necessarily a strong interest, of course, in the topics privileged by weapons specialists, such as technical evolution, efficiency, and forging methods. Arms and armor studies was more often associated with physical science in interdisciplinary research. And this is a very serious picture, in fact, because in 1962, the NASA came to the Royal Armouries at the time it was uh, at the Tower of London to study uh, the armor of Henry VIII. Uh, it's like the first one I've shown you. Uh, it's covering completely the body. And the engineer from the NASA wanted to see how it was built uh, to create spacesuits, to see the articulation, how it was functioning. So you can see that past uh, armor, the past is also helping the future. Wonderful. But this, has, this had consequences. For example, when the Ecole du Louvre opened in 1882, the school was dedicated to archaeology, and one of the first programs created was Archaeologie Militaire, or Military Archaeology. That's where I discovered, uh, by coincidence, arms and armor studies. As the school turned more to art history and curatorial studies, the legitimacy of the course in the Ecole du Louvre syllabus was more and more questioned. Weaponry belonged to mechanical, scientific disciplines, not the humanities, and even less art. In the first decade of the 2000s, the course narrowly escaped obliteration, and, but finally it was saved. We just had to change its title to better suit the school policy. Adding the word patrimoine, heritage, to its title tempered its scientific and technological nature with a cultural quality more in line with the Ecole du Louvre programme. First, Patrimoine and Archaeologie Militaire, this is the Ecole du Louvre in Paris, in the Louvre, logically. And this is my former students uh, at the Museum of the Army. So first, the Patrimoine and Archaeologie Militaire, or PAM, was saved, but it's still seen as a fascinating oddity in the school. This difficulty in considering arms and armor studies as a legitimate branch of research in the luxurious tree of the humanities is not specific to France. At about the same period, in 2005 to be more precise, the VNA in London finally closed its historical arms and armor section, which had been an important part of the metalwork department. Here they are. Beyond the simple closure of one exhibition room, 
on the storage of exceptional pieces away from the public's eyes, this decision had a symbolic impact as keepers of the arms and armor collection of the V&A, like John Eward and Claude Blair, were almost by tradition world-leading authorities in the field. The collection was well known and had even inspired young designers from the Royal College of Art. And here you can see uh, a silver work, so this is silver, by Joan Thompson, who graduated from the SA in 1995. And this piece was presented in the silver gallery, so just uh, when you can see the lions there. So it was just next to the arms and armor section. And it was still there a few years after uh, the armor section was closed. And you could read on the label that she was saying that she had been inspired by what she saw. Uh, in the exhibition room, so there was a discrepancy. No, it's, it's gone, but it's not on display anymore. So a change had clearly occurred. Guns and gauntlets were not interesting examples of past metalwork mastery anymore, and their role in the evolution of decorative arts and their potential influence on modern design were seen as an unnecessary digression from displaying more familiar objects, such as tipos and crucifixes. But the 2000s are also a turning point, as they have seen the emergence of a younger generation of arms and armor specialists who have benefited from the groundbreaking works of their predecessors, first giving them the opportunity to develop their own research strengths beyond the fundamental but restrictive matters of typology and technique. And since time is short, I'm going to go very fast, showing you a few exhibitions that have taken place uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of New York. Uh, you can see some of the pieces presented under an artistic uh, light. So, faster, yeah. So the problem was that presenting such uh, objects as uh, under the label of decorative art uh, their primary function as weapons was pushed into the background and hidden behind the glitters of gold and silver. You can see another exhibition in Paris, in the uh, Musée de l'Armée in Paris Military Museum, and this exhibition was only uh, on the art of the armorer. And this piece was exhibited, and you can see it's a mace, 16th century, mid 16th century, and in fact, there's a gun inside. So, in terms of I think design, uh, military design, is quite interesting. You know, if the gun doesn't function, you can still beat uh, your, your <laughs> just in case. You, know, you never know. That, that always works. A good, a good mess. Um, weapons are in frequence, frequent in museums, <coughs> but the display of human violence is acceptable to a certain degree in military museums. This is not always the case in others. To make it more palatable, Museum place weaponry in a more conventional category in order to change the public's perception. This little mind trick helps them overlook the fact that they are contemplating objects designed to kill again. So the most beautiful weapons can be seen, of course, as works of art, decorative arts, hiding their deadly function. But when there is no redeeming artistic value, there are other ways to keep viewers from focusing entirely on the original purpose of the object on display. One way is by creating chronological distance. They are antiquity. They may represent a culture where violence was common, but the visitor is happy to believe that such behaviors are no longer gone. Another way is by creating geographical, cultural distance, oh, like for example, 
this is African art, but it's 20th century. Uh, the violence of foreign population of the other can be perceived by cultural differences, assuring the visitor that it cannot happen here. So this current integration of weapons in well-established disciplines leads to a new situation. One could think that weapons are now seen as any other cultural production and consequently wonder about their absence in contemporary collections. If an 18th century gun is displayed in the decorative Oh, where is it? Oh, I've lost it. Well, imagine an 18th century gun. Um, <laughs> is displayed in the decorative art department of the Louvre. Why not do the same with a modern gun in the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, dedicated to modern decorative arts, just a few yards away? Of course, the felt necessity of creating a, distant, a distance is made more difficult since you cannot use a chronological argument anymore. As for geography and cultural difference, weaponry of the 20th and 21st centuries has become too standard to make clear the distinction between them and us. But trains and gas bottles are displayed for all to admire the ingenuity of their designers, so why not armament? The extreme importance of design in the armament industry cannot be denied. A badly designed chair will, at worst, hurt your back, but a badly designed weapon has deep consequences on your life and that of others. So let me quote the collection policy of the Design Museum of London. Quote, to be considered for acquisition, an object must be innovative in one of the following areas. It is design-led. It was or is influential. It delivered change. It enabled access. End of quote. I think this object fits quite correctly. <laughs> you know. So why not uh, a Kalashnikov, an AK-47, in the Design Museum of London? Because you can also read in the same document, quote, the core collection exists to celebrate and document the ways that design impacts and improves people's lives, unquote. Design is defined as a positive concept, a demonstration of what the human brain is, human brain, sorry, is capable of doing to improve people's lives. This position means that weapons are not to be admired. They cannot be, or should not be, displayed as design objects. For there were many reasons for the closure of the arms and armor section of the VNA, this decision <coughs> and the absence of weapons in design museums in general mainly come from the moral unease at the idea of displaying guns as examples of applied art and functional design. To conclude, arms and armor specialists try to look objectively at a production that reflects what is common in most cultures and countries around the world, violence. Are we ready to accept that the urge to violent activities such as war, representing the darker side of mankind, could also produce remarkable arti artifacts? Then I show you this is a screen capture. In this regard, the Museum of Modern Art of New York takes the most daring step with its online experimental curatorial project, Design on Violence, exploring the relationship between design objects and the violence of our world. Interestingly, the project's starting point was the MoMA 2005 exhibition, SAFE, displaying, quote, objects designed to provide a sense of comfort and security, <coughs> end quote. And in this exhibition, between the huggable atomic mushroom, <coughs> which I particularly like, and the inflatable homeless shelter, were two demining devices, 
uh, the one on the left, I think it's pretty obvious how it's functioning. On the one on the right, uh, the CAFON demining system, very simple bamboo with bits of metal and the wind pushing it across the land. So it explodes, it costs nothing to do, very easy to do, so great demining device. <coughs> it is a credit to the MoMA to have understood that if you consider demining devices as design objects, you have to accept that armament production was, and still is, one of the most important design industries. It is to be hoped that these studies on the role of conflicts and violence in design production will encourage deeper reflection on the potential of the human brain to create wonderful designed objects, may they be for the best or the worst intention. And I'm going to end on a small video. I just found it this morning. I really wanted to find it. I hope I can, uh, the sound will be good enough. Ah, no sound. Maybe I have to. This is a 2008 UNICEF campaign mm -hmm. to ban landmines. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>